When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello and welcome again to What I Did Next from ANT Media. I'm Malak Fuad. On the show, we delve into people's life journeys from the point of view of twists and turns, shifts and pivots. We've all had them. Some are more visible than others and make a stop in our track and make a course correction. Others only come into focus with hindsight, when we look back and realize that a particular moment in time was pivotal in our lives. This is the essence of what I did next. I'm joined today by poet, author, radio host, and all-around badass, Salma Elwardeni. Salma, who is of Irish and Egyptian descent, can also lay claim to influences from the Pakistani community of Northern England, as well as her current home in multicultural London. Questions of identity are at the core of who Salma is, and this is at the heart of much of her writing, public speaking, and poetry. She is the author of These Impossible Things, a best-selling novel that breaks down barriers by looking at how a group of Muslim girlfriends navigate love, friendship, and sex. She also currently hosts The Breakfast Show on weekday mornings on BBC Radio London. The show has propelled Selma into the stratosphere, reaching over half a million listeners daily. I find Selma's story fascinating, uplifting, and hopeful. She pushes the boundaries of what is acceptable discussion around morality and religion. She's also given voice to what many modern women from Jakarta to Jeddah are talking about behind closed doors. Could it be that her mixed heritage has given her the license and freedom to speak freely, or is she reflecting what is visible around her, not just in Europe, but also in the Middle East and beyond? Perhaps it's just that she's not afraid to speak her mind. Selma is perhaps best described in her own words. She has written, Heartbreak found me, as it often does, and as my chest cracked open, the poems poured out. I discovered the stage learned that it felt like home, wrote in the early hours, wrote with the dawn, wrote in the dark. I got published. I was commissioned. I gave keynote speeches. I fought for women. I stood with my sisters. I fought with my pen. I wrote stories. I still write stories. Thelma, tell me, how do you define yourself in terms of a profession? Because you wear so many hats. You're a writer. You're a poet. You're a radio host. If someone was to talk to you at a party and say, what do you do? What would you answer? The first thing that always comes out of my mouth is that I'm a writer. Right. I'm a writer. And I say the thing that ties all of the things together that I do, because I, I have my own business as well, and I, I work within the corporate world. I am, at my very core, I am a storyteller. Mm-hmm. And I tell stories. And I tell them in different mediums and in different ways the most natural and the most instinctive and intuitive to me is as a writer. That is my core being. That is what I believe I have a little bit of talent in and that I, I've then worked really hard to hone that you little bit. You have a bit, lot of talent in it, Salma, not a little bit. <laughs> you're very kind. You no, know, and, and, and you're able to go from different genres as well. So you published a novel. You're, is your new book uh, also a novel? Yes, the second one that I'm working on, it's a novel as well. Um, but of course, I've... I, done nonfiction in various anthologies and poetry collections and and poetry yeah yeah Yeah. but it's I think the core of it is you know I I tell a story right that's what I do Mm -hmm. I tell a story 
every morning when I go on X, I host the breakfast show on BBC Radio London. Every single morning when that microphone goes live and I go on air, I tell stories to the citizens of London about what is happening, um, whether that's something awful that's happened overnight, right? I tell that story, here's what's happened, this is how it happened, this is where it happened, and I'm here with you as a character in this story to go through this story with you. Or for example, this morning actually, um, the, right now today in the UK, the law has just changed so that it's now illegal to get married under the age of 18. So you cannot get married in this country, even with parental consent, unless you're 18. I didn't realise that it had been allowed actually. The Lord just oh, changed wow. 27th of February. They will talk about it in the Gosh. history books. Yeah. You know, so I had someone on my on my show who had been a victim of child marriage, as had her sister. Her sister tried to leave and her sister was murdered in an honor killing. And she has been instrumental in this bill. And so that's the story I told of this woman and of other girls who had had child marriages and what that meant to them and how they had overcome it or not and, and how, why it was important to change things to protect them. So you're still telling this story, right? And then if I go yeah. into my business and I, I'm, I do a lot of work with diversity and inclusion with businesses and how they can create diverse businesses. I tell a story of those diverse individuals of what it means to be moving through the world, the challenges that they face and how they can change the narrative of their business so it is a more welcoming and accommodating place. So mm. it's it's all storytelling. Um, but yeah. first and foremost, I do it with um, with the page. With your it? pen and your paper. With my pen yeah, and my yeah, paper, yeah. yeah. And tell me about the public persona that you have because you've done a lot of... TED Talks, um, you've done uh, public speaking. How did that come about? And what was the motivation for that for you? It, it, I mean, it wasn't intentional, believe it or not. It was um, all, this is such a cliche, I'm going to tell you. I was heartbroken. And so my, I always say this, my heart broke and outspilled the poems. And poetry, yeah. I have always written to make sense of the world and to deal with things, right? So then I wrote, I took to the page as I always have done in life and they came out in poems and I decided to start posting those poems on my Instagram. And at the same time, previously, before the heartbreak and before the poetry, I had submitted my book to various publishers and no one wanted it. They didn't want it. Oh, so you have actually written um, your first book a long time ago and you were just w trying to get it the published. The version that's out now is very different. It's, of course. It's same premise. Original draft. Original draft. Yeah. First few chapters. Right. And I, I submitted it and nobody wanted it. And we were, the, it was kind of like 2013, 14. And the climate was so anti-Muslim is the only way that I can put it. And and we'd had the pa the Paris bombings and we'd had yeah. the attack at the Charlie Hedbo offices. Yeah. There was a lot going on. There was yeah. so there was a lot much going, going on, on then. And publishers didn't want to touch it. They said they liked it, but the, it, they kind of didn't, didn't know what to do with it. And I worked in marketing at the same time. And I remember thinking, I know how this works. If I have a brand and if I hold a community, you will come to me. And I had so many rejections and I thought, well, do you know what? I'm going to build a brand and then you are going to come knocking on my door. So that's, I'll do it the other way instead. Oh, how interesting, Selma. So it was so, it was a very conscious building of your brand. Yeah. And I didn't know what that would look like. Right. But I knew I was going to build a community online because I'd already done it on Twitter. So I already knew that I could do it and that I understood it intrinsically in a certain way. And so then I was going to do it on Instagram and then they were going to come knocking on my door. I didn't know what that brand would lead to. So I started posting 
things on Instagram and I started writing more and being really honest. I mean, I always say this, my soul is on Instagram. And I and I started being really honest about my experiences as a woman, what it meant to be a woman, what it meant to be a woman in love with a guy and heartbreak and all of the messy things. And it just grew and grew and grew. And then I got asked to contribute to spoken word nights. And then I was doing spoken word nights and I was performing them around the world. And then I was, you know, being asked to contribute to poetry anthologies. And then someone had seen me do spoken word and asked me to do a TED talk. And then they asked me to do another TED talk. And one thing led to another. Yeah. But you've definitely tapped into, you know, the whole Muslim girl leading her life her truth. It's it's a new phenomenon. Um, when I was growing up, it was never something that was on our radar at yeah. all to look at the lens, to look at our life through the lens of religion. Right. Um, the books we were reading that were coming out of the region, if you want something like Ahdef Suif, right. it was much more about the political awakening Absolutely. of women. And through the lens of how do you relate to the state? How do you relate to your country on a national level? But the religious element was never a factor, you know? And like me, I know a lot of people who grew up in the UK as Muslims Mm. um, or as Christians for that matter. But mainly, you know, if you're looking at it from the religion point of view, that was different to what was, you know, on offer in the UK. We never thought of ourselves through that prism. It was never something that was a factor for us. And that's a generational shift, I think. Yeah, I think so. I think 9-11 is the turning point for that because prior to that, it was never an issue. Your religion was your religion and you just got on with things. It was never considered a, a differentiating point. Yeah. But clearly your generation, it is a major, major paradigm shift right because it was and it because suddenly it was political it wasn't just the fact that you were muslim and it was this private thing it was political and it was part of the public consciousness absolutely and it was part of the public debate suddenly and so either you had to double down on that and be pretty steadfast in that or you had to defend it or you had to denounce it you had to take this stand and it was so jarring to what had previously been quite a private experience and I always say this my religion my faith is between me and God that's it there's no one else there's no one else in this equation it's just between me and a higher being and we have chats and we square it up and we're good with each absolutely Um, absolutely but it was suddenly became part of the public discourse Mm -hmm. and you know people would ask me what did ISIS want? And why were they doing what they were doing? As if I had any insight Absolutely. into that. And, you know, or I would go out in a miniskirt, but I thought you were Muslim. I thought you, you had, and because they've yeah. got this image from the media of these, you know, fully veiled, they have one idea of a Muslim, one idea. So every time you kissed a boy or went on a date or wore a miniskirt or got drunk, you were, you were not conforming to what their idea mm-hmm. of a Muslim mm-hmm. was. And you might go out and wear a miniskirt and kiss a boy and get drunk, but then you would turn around and you would say, actually, I want to marry a Muslim. And they, they would go, but hang on, that doesn't fit either because you're now, you're not a rebel, but now you're conforming, but you won't conform on these things. And now you don't fit our picture, our very simplistic picture of what we think a Muslim to be. And so it was all it was all kind of part of the public narrative. I, I also think that, you know, we're at that first phase where there's like a reality check about what how the West sees us. And 50 years down the line, this conversation wouldn't be happening. Mm, I hope Our so. conversation wouldn't be happening because there would have already been an acceptance and awareness, right. uh, an infiltration or an assimilation uh, and just an acceptance of 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 
all these all these issues, you know? Right. So that's interesting. I just want to go back a step uh, and and look to your childhood, um, your parents. So I know that your father's Egyptian, your mother's Irish. Yeah. And I know that your parents split up and you eventually came to the UK. But take me back a little bit further and and sort of how did they meet, first of all? And then um, and then your early years. Yeah. So my mom was living in London. My father was there on some business. Um and they they fell in love. I think my mum was lured by the promise of living by the pyramids. I think it was a romantic <laughs> notion because we all know, those of us who are Egyptian, will know that being next to the pyramids is an absolute shit show. And exactly. <laughs> not where you want to be living. It's nowhere near where you want to raise a family or, or anything. Absolutely. So um but she did. She she skipped off to Egypt. They fell in love in on the streets of London and she ended up on the streets of Cairo. And she lived there for some nine years and learned the language, reads it, writes it, speaks it perfectly. And that's where I was born. So I was born, let me take you to Fayoum, which is actually where I was born. And why were you born in Fayoum? Is that where your father's from? <sighs> no, I just, ridiculous. <laughs> it's a ridiculous twist of it. Apparently, so legend has it. So my father was a little bit of a, um, you don't have this reference in Egypt, I don't think, but yeah, I, you, anyone who knows the TV show Only Fools and Horses, he was a little bit of a yeah. Del boy. Del boy. So he's always wheeling and dealing, always on, yeah. always living on the never never, always waiting for the next big thing to hit. Something just tomorrow was going to make them millionaires. It was always about to happen, you know, always clutching onto dreams and chasing after different dreams. Apparently, he'd always wanted to be a farmer. I mean, who knows why so they end up the romantic notion oh, of the gentleman farmer probably exactly like these, these, yeah. and you know what the egyptians are like they're overly romantic and dramatic and they get carried away with themselves yeah, absolutely there we go so he ended up on this farm in fayum with a cow or whatever and <laughs> that's where i was born and so, wow. and so and then eventually obviously that didn't work of course it didn't work so they ended up yeah. back in the city um and we we lived there until I was kind of three, four years old. And then, you know, the, the dream never became a reality. And it was always struggling for money or to feed the kids. And I, my mom couldn't afford to feed us. And I don't know what my dad was doing. He was living on a, yeah. living on another dream, right? Um, and so she she came back to she came back to England, my granny's. And you and you have a younger sibling? Older. So my brother's two years older oh, than me. Older, yeah. I see. Okay. And so right. my mum with two babes in her, in arms, she headed back to, yeah. to the UK. They got divorced. And a few years later, she met my dad, who I still, he's my stepdad, but I still yes. call him my dad because he was kind of the only man who ever raised me. And I always say that it takes more than genetics to be a father. Absolutely. And did you keep in touch with your with your biological father? No, never heard from him. And then he died when I was about 12. So I'd never heard Heidner of him. And then when he died, after he died, my mum took us back. And she always stayed in touch with um, his family because she felt that was important for us. And we used to spend summers back in Egypt with my aunties and my cousins. But I never... Oh, well, that's good because at least you didn't lose that connection to... No, to, I think that was something... To that yeah, family. I think that yeah. was something my mum fought really hard for and made sure that's that so it was... so impressive that she did that. Yeah. yeah. Well, yeah, because she could have just said, 
forget it. I mean, you you didn't come through for me, so I don't need to be there for you. Right. But, um, she is a remarkable woman. And so she, um, she kept that connection alive. And then I've always had a relationship with them because of that. And in a lot of what you've spoken about, you've spoken many times about your sort of this part of your identity, about the fact that you are, um, several sort of nationalities mixed in together. Um, you very rarely talk about your mom. So you've talked a lot about your father. You've talked a lot about your Pakistani uh, stepfather and his family, sort of by extension, uh, and the world of of growing up in an Asian uh, home in, yeah. in the UK. Yeah. But you've, you've, I haven't read anything that you've said or heard anything you said about your actual mother. That's so who's interesting. Irish. Tell me about her. She that's so interesting because I find that I always mention her in um in interviews. And I remember one time my mom said, Stop mentioning me. Like I'm not that great. And obviously I told her <laughs> that she was that great. And she was like, I haven't done anything. And I did tell her she made me. So you did something. <laughs> exactly. You know? That's enough. Right? You can retire on that. It's fine. Absolutely. Um Absolutely. But yeah, my mom's Irish. She um she lives in the northeast of England now. She's a remarkably intelligent woman. She home educated me and my brother. So she took us out of school when we were about six because she just felt like we weren't learning enough and the education system wasn't good enough and taught us everything that we know until the age of 16. Wow. And then when we were 16. That's incredible, Selma. Yeah, remarkable. It really is. I mean, she, I mean, for someone who did that to say that she's done nothing with her life, I mean, you know. Give her a medal. That's incredible. I know. I know. And really I think, is, yeah. I think, and very difficult to do. Right. Yeah. And I think since lockdown, when parents had to home educate their kids, they realized they, <laughs> they realized Absolutely. just how hard Absolutely. that was. But yeah, she's, you know, a, a brilliant, brilliant mind and just didn't really think the education system was benefiting us. And I have to say, we didn't have formal lessons when, when I was a kid. We didn't sit down from nine to 10 and do maths and then English. That just wasn't the way it was she would take us to museums and to lectures and to workshops. And we went on bike rides around the country and mm. just learn as we went through life. And when I asked a question, she would send me off to the library to figure out the answer myself and come back and tell her mm-hmm. the answer. When we come back, Selma tells us about her move to Egypt after university in a tale that is both hilarious and touching. That's right after this short break. I wanted to take a minute to tell you about our bonus episodes, available exclusively for subscribers. On each bonus episode, I take a deeper dive into my guests' industries, and I share some extra parts from our conversation. For example, you can find out more about the screenwriting process with acclaimed filmmaker Mo Hevzi, or about the luxury design industry with Monez and Ayad Raouf, the sisters behind Ochtin. All of these great stories are only available on our bonus episodes, so subscribe now to unlock this amazing extra content. You can subscribe in Apple Podcasts by clicking the subscribe button or on our website and get instant access to all our bonus episodes with a two-week free trial. And now, back to the show. Welcome back to What I Did Next. I'm Malak Fuad, and you're listening to my conversation with Selma el you finished your studies in the UK, then you came to Egypt. So you came, what, on a quest to, <laughs> to find a little bit <laughs> who, your, who your dad was, your family? I think a quest is a lovely way of putting it. Yeah. So I had, <laughs> I had been raised in the northeast of England, born in Egypt, but raised in the northeast of England with an Irish mother and a Pakistani stepfather. So I came home every day 
and no one looked like me outside of the house and no one looked like me inside of the house, right? So it's this real dissonance when no one actually looks like you. Um, and so you don't know even, you don't know where you quite belong. And I had this yearning for Egypt and I had this, you know, does, and we'd gone back when I was, when yeah. I was a kid and every time I went back, all my aunties would tell me was, oh my God, you are the spitting image of your father and you look like him. And not even that, you act like him, your mannerisms, you have the same humor. And how do you have the same mannerisms when you were never together in a room with each yeah. other for that? It's unbelievable how that is. Uncanny. Yeah. And I, that's, and so I was constantly fed this narrative and I was like, I wanted to go back and I wanted to learn the language properly. And I wanted to spend time in Egypt. And I, I did a degree and I did a master's. And and I had spent four years in the library because I am a diligent student. And so I thought before I go into offices and my life as an adult, I need to go and have this quest. This get it out of your system, basically, right? You need to get it out of your system. Right. Yeah. And I was looking for something. I was searching yeah. for a huge part of me, right? Some some way that I could claim Egyptianness more because I felt like I didn't have a valid claim to it because I didn't even speak the language properly. But were you searching for it, Salma, because you you felt out of place in in England? Well, the thing is, I've always been out of place. I'm out of place yeah. in England because they see me as a foreigner. I'm out of place with my Pakistani community because I don't look like them and I don't speak the language either. And then I'm out of place in Egypt, Ashanam Agnabeya, right? So I'm, yeah. I still yeah. don't fit. So, I mean, what it taught me was that I was still out of place and that if I wanted to belong to this place, I was going to have to take it for myself and no one was going to give it to me. And I would have to stand up and say, I'm Egyptian and I belong here and this is my country. Um, so I went, I packed up my bags, I went to Egypt. I ended up in the desert between Skandreya and Cairo working in a horse ranch on this farm why did you do that? Can I just ask, <laughs> what made you go and do that? <laughs> you ask that like I'm a crazy person. Why would you do that? Which is a fair question. It's a fair question. Were you earthy? Were you, no, were you outdoorsy? Yeah, I was very, I'm a very outdoorsy person. And I like the outdoors. And I always loved camping and hiking. And I've always been into yeah. that. And I always, I liked horse riding. I'll tell you the truth. I hadn't done that much of it. We couldn't afford to ride horses when I was yeah. like, you know, we didn't have any money growing up, right? No one was taking me to the stables on a Saturday morning sure. to ride my pony. Yeah. That was not a reality. <laughs> and so, but it was something that I I had in my head and I wanted to do. And so my mom had a friend, this white woman, and she had gone out to the middle of the desert between Skandreya and Cairo. She bought this um farm. So I get on the plane. I can get picked up at the airport and I literally, I go straight to Skandreya. Like, well, it's not Skandreya, it's between, okay? Yeah, it's a desert road, it's yeah. It's like nowhere, okay? And um, and then I for the next five months, I work on this farm. I get up every, and my responsibility was the animals. I, I mean, what qualified me for that? Nothing. <laughs> but, I, but I am a huge believer that whatever I lack in ability or talent, I will make up for in hard work. So I got up every morning, uh, you know, four o'clock in the morning and I milked the cow and I let the chickens out and I fed the chickens and I fed the goats and the sheeps and the rabbits and I mucked out I mucked out the stables. And presumably you learned the language because you're you're talking to to people around you who are working with you. So I actually learned like very specific farm. So I got back <laughs> when I did get back to the city, like I knew the words for rake. Farm jargon. Yeah, like I knew how the words for rake and hay and stables and stuff, but I didn't know how to order in a restaurant. Do you know what I mean? Um, 
Um, so it was really quite. Was quite I love the story. It's hilarious. It was really strange, but I learned so much. You know, someone sat there with me the first day and showed me how to milk this cow. And from then on, it was my responsibility, sun up and sun down, to milk the cow and take the milk into the house. And that's everything we ate from the farm. If we wanted chicken for dinner, I learned how to get a chicken, slaughter mm. it, gut it, pluck it. And cook it. You know, I learned it from the whole cycle of it. If you're on a if you get thrown on a desert island, you'll know how to survive basically. 100%, your, I'm fine. Survi- your survival skills are there. Stay with me. And then I will look after yeah, exactly, you. Exactly, exactly. And then what? After five months you you realize you needed to see more? Yeah, I I was like, I'm done. I'm good here. Yeah. And I I mean, listen, let me tell you, I have never been in better shape than when I lived on that farm. I can imagine. I can imagine. And worked physical labor. And no processed food. Nothing. Exercising all day long. Every day. I mean, mucking out cow shit is a workout you would not believe because that sticks to the ground like anything. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So five months there, I thought, halas, yeah, I'm done. Like, I'm ready. Mm. I'm ready to go to the city. And in your mind, was this like a gap year or was this the start of the rest of your life no I think in my head I left to go to Egypt and I said I'm gonna go for a year I ended up being there for two and a half years and but I I, when I was there I just thought we're gonna just do this until it doesn't feel good anymore right yeah and it feels so good so good right now it was incredible um so I just threw myself into it head and heart and went for it so I've done the farm I moved to Egypt on the 24th of January 2011 it's unbelievable. The very next day is obviously is the 25th of January. Is the revolution begins. Any prospect of a job in international business is now a dream and a myth because the city goes into curfew and a lockdown, essentially. Yeah, it was a very traumatic time for a lot of people. The older generation as well just lost it. Yeah, and it was unsafe, right? Like I remember the bullets it was around our neighborhood yeah. as well. And um my my the friends that I'd moved in with, you know, their parents called them back, get back on a plane. All the kind of expat people I knew had left the country. Um, the embassy, the British embassy had sent me a message saying we're putting a plane on for all our citizens. Get on the plane yeah. and get out of the country, basically, because we can't guarantee your safety after this. Mm-hmm. And my mum called me and she said in Arabic, she said, get down to the street and go and fight for your country. <laughs> No way. I love it. Well, she's got the Irish in her. She's yeah, a fighter. Exactly. There was a parallel that exactly. she could relate to. She's a revolutionary yeah. through and through. Totally. And she was like, I wish I was there. And she had been there 30 years previously when Mubarak had been voted in or had gotten in in the first yeah. place. And so she said, like, and go and fight for your country. And so I did. And um, and I remember being very cognizant at the time that history was happening. I was so aware of that. And I said that to my cousins. I said, they're going to write about this day and we will have lived mm-hmm. it. It won't be yeah. history to us. Yeah. We can say we were there in Tahrir. And um, my female cousins wouldn't go but I went with my male cousins and we we went and we protested well because you were different right you were not considered local you were foreign so you could get away with things that a lot of people couldn't get away with and you know what I was so aware of that privilege because there were many a time that I got caught out after curfew and I got stopped by the army and I always pretended that I did not speak a word of Arabic and I put on my best British accent and pretended Mm. I didn't know anything and just smiled and I always got away with it and I know that my cousins would not have had that privilege Absolutely. So then I was there. I was in a revolution, fighting, writing about it for everyone back home. And, and that, that was the next stage. And after that, you decided to leave or did you stay on a little bit longer in Egypt? No, I stayed. I got a job once once life came back to work and the curfews were lifted. I um, 
so I was either I was protesting the revolution and then my auntie also taught me to knit so we would spend a lot of time indoors <laughs> after curfew knitting I didn't knit anything I just knitted this long thing that made no shape yeah, whatsoever it's just the, 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 the manualness of Bizarre, it you know, the, and, yeah, and we yeah. would have cauliflower sandwiches every day because that's always what I wanted to eat <laughs> and we went I baked with my cousins and we knitted and then I would I would go out in the revolution when we come back, we see how Selma's life pivoted her back to the UK and how she continues to change the narrative through her radio work. I wanted to take a minute to tell you about our bonus episodes, available exclusively for subscribers. On each bonus episode, I take a deeper dive into my guests' industries, and I share some extra parts from our conversation. For example, actor and comedian Rami Youssef told me about his thoughts on cancel culture, and ex-anchor and now author Hala Gorani told me her thoughts on the future of journalism. All of these great stories are only available on our bonus episodes, so subscribe now to unlock this amazing extra content. You can subscribe in Apple Podcasts by clicking the subscribe button or on our website and get instant access to all our bonus episodes with a two-week free trial. And now, back to the show. Welcome back. I'm Malak Fuad, and this is my conversation with Salma Alwardani. What was a turning point for you out of what you've spoken about so far? Yeah, I think coming to, to Egypt and working on that farm was incredible. But I think the real shift happened when I had moved to Cairo and I was living with my friends. And I guess, I i mean, I didn't move out for university. So it was the first time I was living in, and paying bills and being responsible for myself in that way and being alone in the world and being accountable and having what I imagine people have when they go to university and having this widening of the horizons, this widening of life, this thrilling experience and I was in love with life life was beautiful and incredible I was earning an expat salary I was eating in the best restaurants I was uh, surrounded by friends and laughter and it was an incredible it was an mm -hmm. incredible time and I think that was a real turning point for me and my development and the person that I was growing to be and you've spoken about at this time of your life you were in a relationship with an Egyptian um, you were very in love and then it, it turned sour. Yeah. So I think meeting him was a, was a turning point. I, I met him when we were both kind of traveling back to the UK for summer. Um, he's Egyptian and we had a thrilling romance and, and fell in love, but he was controlling and he was abusive and he was manipulative and those things didn't take long to start coming through. And then suddenly, as quickly as I had become this new person that I had grown into, I then became someone else, right? I became someone who was scared and worried and watched my words and watched what I said and who I talked to and how much I smiled at a guy just in case that was misconstrued into something. I stopped telling my male friends that I missed them back home because that had been overheard on the phone once and that did not end well. Um, and I became... A different person once more and, and I was in that relationship for um about two years and there was another turning point when we both decided and we lived together in Cairo and there was another turning point when we both decided and he was born and raised in London we decided that it was time to come home because political unease can only get you so far and I was really aware that I wasn't I was having 
a good time, but I was aware that I wasn't progressing my life, that I wasn't learning anything new. I already knew that teaching was not for me and that was not a profession that I was going to stay in. Um, I mean, milking the cow was easier than teaching, I tell you that much. <laughs> and so I was I was so aware that I wasn't developing and I am hungry to always develop. If I spend a whole year and I am the same at the end of that year as I was at the beginning, I know that I have failed and I've wasted a year. So I knew that I wasn't developing. So we decided to to go back home. Um, I moved back in with my with my family for a while while I was looking for work in London. Um, I got a job eventually in London, and I mean the relationship had deteriorated so much over this time and was so abusive and and nasty and cruel. And by the time I moved to London, which was when we were going to get engaged, um, that was when he told me that it was all over and that that for no reason at all. Um, and then a month later, he was married. So that was that was another turning point. It's interesting because what my perception of you is that you're an, a very strong girl um, and very sure of yourself. But it it takes just one relationship like that when you're young, and if it's your first really important relationship, it just completely throws you. It's it's very hard to find your footing and make decisions for yourself. You you knew from the beginning probably that it wasn't didn't feel right but you still stayed right and I remember thinking to your point I remember thinking when I was in this abusive relationship I remember thinking how did this happen to me of all people who doesn't take shit from anyone and who is so confident and so vocal and outspoken how has this happened to me and I remember thinking oh it's not about how confident you are it's not about how vocal you are it's about power and men having it and wielding it over you. And that doesn't, it, it doesn't care how confident you are. And I remember having that thought and being so shocked and surprised by it. And so it was as if all the ground had moved under me, having that realization. And also you have to bear in mind, I had this deep yearning ache to be Egyptian and I think yeah. we try to cement our identity in the people opposite us in the friends that we make in the circles that we keep and in the relationships that we have it fit the bill and I thought somehow through you I'm gonna be more Egyptian whole and I'll be whole and I'll be whole right yeah and the irony yeah, yeah, is that yeah. that relationship fragmented me into a thousand pieces yeah. and so when it ended and he ended it um it you fell apart, right? That's exactly what you're saying now. I think I had fallen apart in the relationship because within it, I think yeah. when you are in an abusive relationship and anyone who has been unfortunate enough to be in these situations, they will tell you that the breaking happens over time. And by the time you get to the end of that, you're not, you're already broken. It's done. The yeah. damage is done. Yeah. And so he walked out of that, uh, out of my house. And I, I, for years, I didn't speak about it. I didn't say his name. My friends weren't allowed to say his name. I threw myself heart and soul into my work. I worked every hour. I worked nights. I mean, I did very well at it, you know, as a result, but, um, I just didn't talk about it. I didn't deal with it. And mm -hmm. I just got on with life. And for quite a few years, I couldn't love anyone. I couldn't let anyone love me. It was just my work and nothing was going to get in the way of that or, or break me into more pieces. And how did the, how did you get over it in the end? Was it that you met someone new or was it a question of just time healing it? God, no. Do you know what? I would say, I don't know if I'm. It's a hard question because there's a catalyst along the way sometimes as well. I think 
time does heal everything eventually. But I think personally, and anyone I've spoken to has been in an abusive relationship, I think you are like irrevocably changed. That you are never the same person you once were. I am so aware that the woman I was going into that relationship has been lost to me forever. And that even though bad things had happened in my life to me, and even though there had been hardships, there was a lightness in me. That's the only way I can really describe yeah. it. I had light yeah, yeah. in me. and A carefreeness. Almost. Even though I had experienced yeah. real hardships. But once he had came and gone, there was a darkness in me that ha- it's I've... a loss of innocence Selma I think is what is probably what you're searching for it's that that naivety or that that um that trustingness yeah perhaps you know? that was yeah it. but th- there was something that was forever changed in me yeah and subsequent relationships are you more on guard are you more aware are there signs that you're that do you have alarm bells that go off if and you know if certain things appear on the radar? I mean, yeah, I think so, and I think you naturally do. And I remember being yeah. with something with someone and and ending it and walking away from it in the end. And I remember some of their behavior when they got really angry and they shouted. And I and I remember thinking, oh, I've seen this mm-hmm. before. I've seen yeah, this. Yeah, yeah. And I remember having the thought. I did not work this hard to become the woman that I am today to put up with behavior like that. I did not go through all the things that I went through. I did not survive that man to put up with your shit now. Absolutely. I have a lower tolerance. So let's talk a little bit about your first novel. Yeah. Um, It's it's written... um, from the point of view of three women, um, tell me about it. How did you think it up? Well, this book started, I think I wrote the first sentence when I was living in Egypt and searching for a way to put this story on the page. Aid sex. Aid sex. Aid sex. There you go. That's um, the thing that we all have questions about. <laughs> Do you know what? This 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 book was born years before. So I did my degree in literature and then I did a master's in uh children's literature and I specifically looked at young adult literature and my thesis was all about the representation of Muslims within literature and I looked across the western world so America, New Zealand, Australia, the UK what does what do those stories say about Muslim kids uh, or Muslim women and Muslim men what, what what's the narrative and obviously you already know it was awful it was terrible it was shocking and I remember thinking well this isn't me and my girlfriends. This isn't us at all. And so I'm going to write the story. I'm going to write the real story. And I always knew I wanted to be a writer. I always knew I wanted to write novels. And I said, this is going to be the first one. This is this is going to be where I start because this is bullshit. And this isn't our lived experience. And this isn't how we live. And I want to see us on the page. We don't exist anywhere on the page. And I was a kid when 9-11 happened. And I, I was so aware of the shift in society and the narrative and how often we now got shouted at in the street in comparison. 9-11 changed my life. But you were like, what, 11, 12, something like so, that? Yeah. And so I was aware of it. I remember where I was when I was watching it. I remember getting yeah. the news. Um, and it changed my life as it did many other kids. And I, and life got so much harder 
then. And especially living in the northeast of England, I wasn't living in London. It wasn't multicultural. I was the darkest yeah. thing on the you train. You were the only one right? there. Yeah. So life just got very hard at that point. And so, and I remember thinking when I was in university, life is so hard for us because we have no positive representations in media, in film, in Hollywood, on TV series, in our pages of our literature. And so I thought, I'm going to, I'm going to write it in. There's that Maya Angelou quote, you know, if there's a story that you want to read that's not written, then write it. And so I thought I better write it. And that's why I decided to start with this book with three Muslim women who were ambitious and hungry and had passions and big dreams. And they wanted to go off and do all of those things. And they were in love and falling in and out of love. And they were sexual and they had uh, a hunger for more in this life. And they just so happened to be Muslim. The fact that they were Muslim wasn't the main narrative, wasn't the reason that they were in the story. They were three women, like any other women around the world, dealing with things women do. They just happened to be Muslim as well. I want to just ask you a little bit about, we touched about it early on, um, your work with, uh, as a radio host, you know, how that's a, that's a shift. I mean, that's a, that's a big, uh, change for you. Um, you're now known to a much wider audience of people who would not necessarily have known who you were before. You're, um, if you, for want of a better word, you've gone mainstream in a way, <laughs> right? You're on London BBC radio. So yeah. it's, uh, it's, you know, you're, you're reaching a huge audience. Um, you're talking about things that are not at all, uh, where you had placed your brand, if you like, uh, previously, how, how is that? And how is, how is your day-to-day -day life now? Because you clearly have the radio show in the morning and then you're working on these edits in the evening. So just walk me through a little bit how that's all going. It's tiring. I'm not going to lie. I, yeah. listen, let me tell you, when I was a kid, when I was maybe six, seven, I used to wake up really early when I was a kid. I, I don't know why I had this compulsion. I used to wake up really early. I used to wake up at six o'clock in the morning and I would write a fictional news headline and I would put on a cardigan because it was the smartest thing that I owned in lieu of like a blazer. <laughs> and I would sit and shuffle my papers up and down and I would How read cute. the six o'clock news. My fictional How six o'clock news. I mean, everyone in my house would shout, shut up, we're sleeping. <laughs> Um, but every morning I would read this fictional six o'clock news and I, we didn't have a TV growing up. My mum threw it out. She said it was a waste of time. We didn't learn anything, but all we had was the radio and we had radio four. I woke up to radio four and I fell asleep to radio four. I know exactly the schedule of radio four. I know when things come on. I know what the Sunday schedule is. I, I lived by it. I set my clock by the radio four schedule and, and I loved radio. I adore radio and I've always been a real radio head. So and then there I was as a kid doing my fictional radio briefings in the morning. And so it, it seems when you look back on it, it seems little wonder that I am now in radio. And yet it was, I didn't plan it. I didn't, I didn't go to bed at night and say, I'm going to be a radio host when I, when I grow up. But this brand had built and someone said they're holding, they're holding pilots at, at Radio London. And I think you would be great. Do you want to come in and try one and just sit for a pilot? And I said, and I, I'm a huge believer in say yes and figure out how to do it later. Is this for the show that you co-hosted? You had, uh, you I had co -hosted uh, a show. Yeah. Originally yeah, it was, yeah. with a, it was with someone I co-hosted. Um, and so, and we got the gig. But was that more of a music show? It wasn't, it wasn't more, it wasn't current affairs based. It was kind of culture and the arts and creative scene in London. Right. Because also I had made a name for myself as a poet in this scene. People knew me from that. And so I was pretty tapped into the creative side of London. I was, you know, I was about. And so, 
you know, I did that show, but I've always had an interest in politics and current affairs, current affairs. And so the jump was pretty easy. And I mean, the story's boring, but fast forward four years later, I've done documentaries for Radio 4. I present on Radio 4 occasionally, BBC Five Live, which is national. Um, I've done documentaries for World Service. And then four years later, from my first pilot, I now host The Breakfast Show on BBC Radio London, which is a mix of politics, current affairs, things that are happening in the city, as well as all the arts and culture stuff as well, whatever's important to London. So obviously that's big national stories with a London lens yeah, and, it's, and it's local stuff as well. And do you get to bring in your particular interest of about women, uh, diversity? Do you get to sort of set the agenda a little bit from from that perspective? Well, this is this is exactly it, right? So... And this is why I, I do it and I love and I love radio. So I always want to do radio. But I think about the things that I talk about on my Instagram and I talk about women's rights and I talk about what it means to be a woman in this world. And that's my foundation to everything that I do. It's womanhood. I am obsessed with womanhood. I am perpetually angry at the injustices that we face. I am so vexed that we've been fighting for so long and we have been fighting this hard and we're still not where we even are close to needing to be. And so I exist in this angry state and I talk about it on my Instagram. And yeah, there's there's thousands of people there and that's wonderful. But the majority of those people agree with me. That is an echo, yeah. that is an echo chamber. That and it's lovely and it's a community, but it's an echo chamber. They are with and me it's self, already. It's self-reassuring and self-affirming. Yeah. Absolutely. And I remember thinking, would I do more good going mainstream and having this conversation to, you know, 50-year-old Joe who's a plumber, who's never met people like me, and is his circle is not likely to cross people like me, and he doesn't know much about BLM and probably wouldn't has never protested for anything, either the Iraq war war or a woman's march or for George Floyd. You know, has never done those things, is never gonna cross his social circles. Is it better that every day I can talk about the news and I can tell the stories in a way that is compassionate and empathetic and through the lens of women and not, not just that, but women of color. And will that change Joe's mind a little bit? And will that bring Joe around Absolutely. a little bit more? And that's millions of people that you get to broadcast to every morning. And you're certainly, you're doing your bit to bridge that gap. And, and, you know, that's, that's what's needed. That's needed to, to raise awareness, to bridge the gap. I mean, it's vital. It's right. Vital. And also I'm a working class kid, right? So the BBC is yeah. infiltrated with middle-class people. And so <laughs> I want to bring that, Absolutely. that voice as well. And I've, I've had slack over the years for being part of the BBC when the BBC has come under fire and no, they don't get it right all the time. But I always think, don't I do more good here at the table and I'm in charge of my own show I have the breakfast show it's the yeah. flagship show of any station and it's incredible that I have it after four years and I I set the agenda on that show I say to my team yeah. you know and I said to them yesterday today on the program we're doing child marriage we're going to talk about the importance of it why it's important that the marriage age is risen from 16 to 18 we're going to cover that get me women to talk to get me women who've experienced this get the commentators and the barristers make sure they're women bring them on my show i can platform that i don't get to platform that on my instagram i don't get to, that's right you know i can i can i have the mayor of london on my show i have political leaders on my show i get to talk to the the commissioner of the police force about why he's not protecting women in London. I get to have those conversations at my Instagram, as great as it is, and it's not going to afford me those conversations. So yeah. where do I do more good, right? 
Amazing. I love it. I loved our chat. It was really great. Thank you for such an enlightening conversation. Thank you for joining me today. And if you've enjoyed this episode, please leave us a review in your favorite podcast app. On our bonus episode for members, which comes out next week, Salma and I talk more about the impact of her work and, of course, her fantasy dinner party guests. You can get our bonus episodes by subscribing on our website as well as on Apple Podcasts. What I Did Next is brought to you from ANT Media, and it's hosted by me, Malak Fuad. It's also co-produced by Shirag Desai. You can follow us for more on our website, Instagram, Twitter, and on LinkedIn. Just search for What I Did Next. We'll be back in two weeks' time with our final guest of Season 6. Hope to see you then.